in Cooperstown. Cooperstown, it's not so far away. It's a place in our dreams where the stars look down. They're shining on Cooperstown. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the special Cooperstown edition of the Baseball Lifer podcast. This is Don Wardlow, your baseball lifer in residence. I'm recording this on Friday, the 31st of March. And this past weekend, as the opening song might suggest, my brother, brother-in-law, nephew, and myself were all in Cooperstown. First and foremost, I want to thank Steve Vizzolo, the singer of that song. His band, Steve Vizzolo and the Rookies, have an album out about baseball songs. It's called I Love Baseball. And that song is on it, Cooperstown. What a visit that was. That's a destination for the baseball lifer. If you haven't been there, try and make the trip. I can't, in a few words, say just how great it was. We got to touch the statues right out front, just as you enter the building. They have statues of Roberto Clemente, Jackie Robinson, and Lou Gehrig. And if there's a baseball trinity for both their great play and their great character. Those three are the men. I was a great admirer of Phil Rizzuto as a youth when we played wiffle ball before my voice changed. I would pretend to be Phil Rizzuto at the same time pitching to the kids in the neighborhood. Later on, my joke was that Phil Rizzuto was as great as he was because his voice never changed. There's a statue of a cow with a number 10 uniform on it. And Rizzuto was number 10 and holy cow was his pet expression. He said he was using it way before baseball so he could avoid swearing. I got to spend time in the broadcaster's wing while the players have plaques which do have raised letters, the broadcasting room, they don't have plaques, but the great broadcasters since 1978 have been enshrined there. That was the year of the first Ford C. Frick Award. In the first year, there were two enshrined at the same time, Mel Allen and Red Barber. But there's been only one Frick Award every year since then. This year, 2023, it's going to go to Pat Hughes of the Cubs. So he'll take a day off and go to Cooperstown to receive his induction as Ford C. Frick Award winner. And doubtless he'll make a very enjoyable speech. All the winners have. That's part of the gig. They've got a tape loop nonstop while the hall is open. And you hear, say, two or three minute pieces of these great broadcasters. 
and I could name them, and really the baseball lifers would know who they are. Bob Elson from the 1930s, the old commander. Bob Prince is on there. Mal Allen, of course, Red Barber, naturally. Jack Buck, Bob Murphy, Tom Cheek, who broadcast for the Blue Jays. And I'm sure there's more. Those are the ones that jump to my mind. They sell a book there, Memories from the Microphone. And during this week, as I prepared for this broadcast, I listened to a good chunk of that book, and it's good stuff. It's about all those Frick winners and some broadcasters who haven't been enshrined, but were still worthy of mention in Kurt Smith's book. In just a moment, you'll be able to hear an interview I did following my visit with former president of the Hall of Fame, Jeff Idelson. You'll hear him, if you keep it, where you got it. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, our special edition about the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And our guest was the president of the Hall of Fame, Jeff Idelson. Jeff, it's been a long and winding road since we met in 2001. It sure has, Don, but uh, it's great to be with you again. And uh, I've always enjoyed our company and our shared love of being baseball lifers. Now, we can pretty well imagine how a player can get to Cooperstown and how a broadcaster can get to Cooperstown. Now, what was your road? Did you at some point say, I want to work at the Hall of Fame? No, I grew up in the Boston area, Don, and uh, New Englanders tend to go north and south. So my parents were big baseball fans, but we never ventured west to, to Cooperstown, New York. We either went to the mountains in New Hampshire or the beach on the Cape. And I just knew that I loved baseball growing up. That was the the thing for me. Uh, I was uh, scoring games when I was five years old and going to games with my parents. And uh, I then became a vendor at Fenway Park and was uh, sold food and stuff in the stands for, I don't know, seven or eight years. And then was lucky enough out of college. Uh, I graduated from Connecticut College in New London, Connecticut with a degree in economics in 1986 uh, but was able to get an internship immediately with the Red Sox that year, which is the year they went to the World Series uh, and lost to the Mets. And that started my career. And after eight years with the Red Sox and Yankees, a position opened up in Cooperstown. And I'm like, man, that sounds like a cool place to visit. I had never been, went there, immediately fell in love and when offered the job, accepted. During your internship with the Red Sox, what kind of things were you asked to do? Well, I worked in the PR department, uh, which was a lot of fun. And uh, I worked with the the media that covered the team, which to me was incredibly exciting because Don, growing up a Red Sox fan, I knew who the writers were. You know, I knew who Larry Whiteside was. I knew who Peter Gammons was. Uh, these were guys that I then was getting a chance to work with. And um, whether, whether it was helping them or other members of the media, I work closely with the Jimmy Fund, which is the Red Sox charity to help get guests for them for different events. And uh, really just about everything that goes with uh, PR and, uh, com and communications was what I was involved with. As a Yankee fan, I have room in my heart for one Red Sox broadcaster, and that's the Marine, Ned Martin. Yeah, Ned was unbelievable. Uh 
He uh, he uh, was the uh, the voice of TV with Jim Wood when I was growing up, who had been in Pittsburgh, and uh, Ned was something else. I mean, he uh, he he his connection to the audience in uh, New England was uh, was unsurpassed. He was absolutely beloved in all all the states that uh, were able to get Red Sox broadcasts. And he had the good luck to be at the microphone when Carlton Fisk hit his home run in 1975. He sure was. He was there in 75, and he was also there in 67 when there was a little pop-up to the left side <laughs> of the field, and Rico Petroselli makes the catch. And so I still remember that as well also. But the memorable moments, Ned Martin was there. Right on. We're talking on the Baseball Lifer podcast with Jeff Idelson, who is past president of the Hall of Fame, and from getting into the Hall of Fame and beginning your first job there to becoming president, how how did that work? Well, I got hired uh, uh, by the Hall of Fame in in the summer of 1994, in the middle of the, uh, it, and then I was super excited. Uh, I get ready to go to Cooperstown, and then the baseball strike happened. So all of a sudden I'm working for an institution that markets baseball and there's no baseball. So that was somewhat challenging, but as a PR guy, you love those challenges. And I went there as their PR director, Don, uh, in 1994, was there for five years and promoted then to uh, a vice president of communications and education and uh, served in that role, taking care of the media, planning all the programs, being the liaison with the teams to get artifacts for the Hall of Fame, that kind of thing. I did that for from 1999 to 2008. And uh, it was at that point that our uh, current president left and I was asked to take over and uh, did that for the next 13 years. Now, we met in Charleston, South Carolina, where Jim and I were the broadcasters for the River Dogs in 2001. And if you recall, what took you to Charleston? What was What were you looking for in Charleston? Well, I had a long relationship with Mike Vec, um, and I think we actually met in St. Paul before that, believe it or not. But it, I had a long relationship with Mike, and uh, I just went down to go see him and Dave Eccles and all the good folks with the with the River Dogs, and just sort of connect. I believe it might have been, it might have been on April fifteenth, because I remember there being a giant Uncle Sam in the ballpark, you know, helping you get your taxes done. Uh, but I think I went down there to. Uh, spend some time with Mike and and really enjoy the ball club. And he had me throw out a first pitch. And we got to interview you. And then you were kind enough to send me some games, which I had never heard up until that time, the 34 and 41 All-Star games and the Mickey Owen game in the 1941 World Series. Those are all still treasures of my collection. Oh, that's awesome. The Mickey Owen pass ball story. Yeah, it's uh, you pick some good ones. And the great thing about the Hall of Fame is the incredible archive to which you added, as I may recall. Uh, but the archive at the Hall of Fame is second to none. And providing uh, copies of what's in there for people to do research, uh, to, to, to gain more knowledge and to help them succeed is part of the mission of the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And when we were there, Joe Dore brought out a number of things. One of the things he brought out was the tapes of the game where Mariano Rivera struck out a dozen miracle when Jim and I were broadcasting for the miracle. Oh, how about that? That's right. How about that? Back in Mariano's younger days. That's a, uh, that's quite, 
See, a lot of people don't even know that. And that really, uh, and the fact that you're connected to that game and connected to Mariano, who uh, is the first unanimous Hall of Fame inductee, is pretty special. And I got a chance to touch one of Ichiro's bats and a pair of Rizzuto's spikes. You know, he was known as the scooter. So those spikes, you know, helped him get across the field as rapidly as he did. And what a pleasure that was. Oh, Phil, Phil was one of the greatest. I loved working. Well, Ichiro and I are very good friends, uh, uh, but, but uh, Rizzuto was really special and having the opportunity to work with him in New York when he was broadcasting for WPIX was, was incredible. And, um, you know, Phil, Phil was just a man with a big heart and he was a little guy, but he had a huge heart. And a tremendous broadcaster. One of my favorites as a boy, along with the Mets, Bob Murphy. Bob Murphy was uh, 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 accepted the Ford C. Frick Award for Broadcast Excellence, and the day that he won that award was my first day at the Hall of Fame, Induction Day 1994, when Steve Carlton and uh, Leo DeRocher and Phil Rizzuto were all in as players and manager, and uh, Bob Murphy, with those dulcet tones, won the Frick Award. When we were there, someone was talking to us about the massive crowds that showed up when Cal Ripken was inducted. Well, every induction is special, Don, and they all have to take on their own flavor based on who is getting that uh, ultimate honor, which is a Hall of Fame plaque. And there is nobody who connected better with fans when he played than Cal Ripken. And there's also no one who connected well, uh, really as well as Tony Gwynn, and they were inducted together. And when you look at that 2007 induction, Don, You've got two players who each played for one team for their entire careers in Gwynn and Ripken. They played in different leagues on opposite coasts, but the common thread that is most endearing is that they were both fan favorites. So when you fast forward to that summer of 2007, 81,000 fans showed up in Cooperstown. And for those that have not been there, it's a town of 1,800 people with one stoplight. It is tiny, but the sea of orange and black and brown and gold to salute Cal Ripken and, and Tony Gwynn was something I've never seen, and I don't know that you'll ever see again in that tiny hamlet. Who handled the logistics, making it possible for 81,000 to find places to eat and places to sleep in tiny Cooperstown, New York? Well, you uh, take that phrase, it takes a village, and that was the glowing example, Don. I mean, we had city and state officials and agencies working with us we had sign we had signs put out on the highways about where to park and how to get there we jacked up our shuttle services to take care of all the fans and uh, at the end of the day it somehow worked and uh even mother nature was uh, feeling kind of sad that day and wanting to cry her eyes out but fortunately being the baseball fan that she is she waited until the speeches were over on the baseball lifer podcast with former president of the Hall of Fame, Jeff Idelson. If you can give me an idea, what was a day in the life of Jeff Idelson as president of the Hall of Fame? What might be in your inbox? What might be a project on a given day? Well, it was that the great thing about being the president is you did a lot of different things. And so I like that. I had something uh, there was always something popping up that that, that was uh, going to make my day interesting, whether it was, you know, talking to a couple of Hall of Famers to, uh, you know, working on the marketing of the institution, being at an event to acquire artifacts, 
helping fundraise to, to build the institution um, or welcoming a group to Cooperstown. Any of those things could happen on any given day. And uh, it was all about connecting. It was all about pe bringing people closer to the game. And I had the distinct pleasure of uh, overseeing 100 staff who I have uh, absolutely adored, uh, an internship group and, and part-time staff that made us grow to 200 in summer. And collectively, as a team, we just wanted to make sure Cooperstown always shined. And uh, I take great pride in that. Your early years with the Hall before you became president, your early years were the final years of Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams. Did you have um, re interactions with um, Joe in particular or Ted Williams' estate? Because I know he was in poorly health his last few years. Well, I actually had uh, relationships with both of them. Uh, great, I'll give you a great Joe DiMaggio story, Don, being the Yankee fan you are. So when I worked for the Yankees, you know, he'd come back for old timers game each year. And uh, in 1989, uh, we had a rookie center fielder, you might recall, named Roberto Kelly, who had oh, come, yeah. up, he'd come up in 88, but he was still technically a rookie, I think. The Jet. In What's that? Jay the Johnstone called him the Jet. Yeah, the Jet. Right, right. Jay Johnstone and... Uh, John Sterling were our broadcasters. And uh, so DiMaggio comes in for old timers day and he says to our clubhouse guy, Nick Priori, I want to meet the Yankee center fielder, you know, being a new guy. So Nick takes him over to meet Roberto Kelly and the, you know, they're having a nice little chat and Joe's, you know, decked out with his, you know, his shirt and tie looking very dapper. And he looks in Roberto Kelly's locker and he sees, five or six bats, none of which belong to him. He sees a Steve Balboni bat, a Gary Ward, a Mike Pagliarulo, uh, you know, uh, on and on and on. He sees uh, these different bats and a Don Mattingly bat. And he's like, and he says to him, you know, why, where are your bats? And he says, well, I'm a rookie, sir. And I broke my, you know, I broke the allotment that I was uh, assigned by this, by the club. So I'm using these instead. And he says, okay. So DiMaggio throws out the first pitch. He goes up to, to Mr. Steinbrenner's suite, who was alive at the time and on the club. And uh, and George says to Joe, oh, Joe, so great to see you. Welcome to New York. And Joe looks him right in the eye and he says, George, how can the Yankee center fielder not have his own bats? A week later, Roberto Kelly had three dozen bats in his locker. Beautiful. That is a terrific DiMaggio story. And it's so off the beaten track from what you'll hear normally about the man who was so difficult for so many people to deal with. It's true. Ted Williams was also, uh, 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 you know, a strong personality. He was serving on the veterans committees when I started beginning it, when I started work with the Hall of Fame, Don. So I spent five or six years with him uh, in meetings and you know, I was uh, I would help him with his materials after he had a stroke because he couldn't get through them. And so we spent a lot a lot of time talking together and I would fill out his ballots for him with who he wanted to put on him. But this was a guy that was a commanding presence. And the best way I can describe that is if you think about Hall of Fame weekend, it's 50 of the greatest living legends. I mean, they're all spectacular in one place at one time. And when Ted Williams would show up, he'd sit on a rocking chair on the back of the Otisaga Resort Hotel's veranda, and it was uncanny. He was like the Pied Piper. Everybody, there were 10, 20 players around him all the time as he told stories of what it was like playing for Boston in the, you know, in the 40s and 50s. 
on the Baseball Lifer podcast, our Hall of Fame edition with former Hall President Jeff Idelson. My favorite part, predictably, is the broadcaster's wing, where all the Ford Seafrick Award winners have been enshrined and where Pat Hughes will go this year. And my favorite part of that was all the recordings they played on a constant loop broadcasters from the 30s right to today now did you in your time did you research how to get these recordings were new things added while you were there we added more in terms of uh, materials than recordings the recordings have been a part of the hall of fame library for so many years don uh, where you're now permanently uh, have a home with your 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 uh, mariano rivera game but he uh that what I loved about it is those broadcasts, as you mentioned, go back to uh, even before live broadcasting. So you have, you know, guys that are doing recreations of games like Ronald Reagan, uh, President Reagan in that mix, uh, right on up to present. But getting, like, uh, you know, getting uh, Bob Prince's jacket or Susan Waldman's microphone, uh, Bob, uh, you know, items like this score, you know, scorecards, scorecard from uh, my good friend Dwayne Kuyper. Helping those pieces to go with the audio um, and make the uh, experience for people who love radio a little more, uh, you know, full circle uh, was part of what I did. And that, like you, I mean, I grew up with baseball on the radio and I worked for Ken Coleman and, and Joe Castiglione for three, uh, two years uh, is deep in my heart. So I, I get it. And that, too, is one of my favorite exhibits. Also, there was a piece in the Babe Ruth room that absolutely held me fascinated. And that was a recording of Babe Ruth and his wife, Claire. Now there are, I'll say a handful, I won't say how many Babe Ruth recordings out there in the world. And I say that as like on YouTube, but that recording with Claire, to my knowledge, is unique. I don't know if her voice is anywhere else. And you've got it. Yeah, the Hall of Fame is, uh, it's got, as we like to say, it has everything your mother threw away, you know, <laughs> so we kind of like we're there at the trash bins getting everything, but no, that's the beauty of what's in Cooperstown. I mean, they've got, uh, you know, it's an institution that's got, uh, you know, more than 3 million pieces in the library, including audio recordings and scouting reports and files and every player's, but that recording of, of, of Babe and Claire is rare, and it really gives some insight, uh, you know, into something away from the ballpark, which even, you know, today is, is, is unique. So we're glad to have that. And that exhibition on Babe Ruth, even though he, he's been deceased for what, 80 years and hasn't played in 90 years, he still is larger than life with so many people. Talking with Jeff Idelson, former president of the hall of fame on our Cooperstown edition. I can't let you get away without talking about your present project grassroots baseball please let me hear the inside information on that well don grassroots baseball um was a project that uh i i started working on as i was leaving the baseball hall of fame and uh, our traveling photographer who had left the hall of fame a year earlier gene fruth who is one of the the greats she is truly one of the greats in baseball photography and sports photography had, had put together a book called Grassroots Baseball Where Legends Begin, which was uh, 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 her, am, her her portraits and pictures of, of the amateur game around the globe. 
And I uh, I helped her by connecting with the, her with Hall of Famers who wrote introductory essays for each chapter about what it was like growing up in that region. So, you know, maybe it's Vladimir Guerrero in the Dominican, Hank Aaron, Mobile, Alabama, uh, Ricky Henderson in Oakland, Nolan Ryan in Texas. And she came to me and said, I understand you're retiring from the Hall of Fame. Would you have any interest in, in turning this book into a not-for-profit so we can give back? Uh, in underprivileged communities and try to help grow the game. And so I, I decided to do that. And uh, Gene and I formed Grassroots Baseball in 2019. It's a, it's a 501c3, a nonprofit. And uh, we promote the amateur game around the globe. The first three years we spent uh, was on Route 66 and telling the stories of the game along Route 66. And we put together a book which came out last year. And now our focus is on girls and women in baseball, the past, present, and future of girls and women in baseball on and off the field around the globe. And so for the next three years, we're going to do everything in our power to storytell the amazing successes that girls and women are having in the game as the game uh, continues to grow in equality. For those who might not know, Route 66 is the highway that John Steinbeck writes about in The Grapes of Wrath, and a decade later, Nat King Cole did the song, Get Your Kicks on Route 66, going some, from someplace in Oklahoma clear to San Bernardino in California. That's the Route 66 you were talking about. It is. Yeah, Bobby Troop did it originally, and then Nat King Cole did an incredible version of that. And yeah, it goes from eight, it goes through eight states, from Chicago to Santa Monica. And uh, I went back and forth on it a few times. It's a, it's a beautiful part of our country. Now the hall of fame, I'm sure is still a part of you, even though you're with grassroots baseball, I'm guessing for 2024, Ichiro, his time may finally come that year. Well, you'd be guessing wrong by one year, but you're right. He's 2025 actually. And if he's not unanimous, I don't know who would be. I mean, you look at a guy, he's a 3,000-hit guy, 10 straight 200-hit seasons, the single-season record for hits, the gold gloves. I mean, he's done it all. And uh, uh, he has a big presence in Cooperstown because of his generosity, and he is undoubtedly going to be the first Hall of Famer born in Japan, and I plan to be there sitting as close to the front as possible. I got to hold one of his bats and I'm writing a magazine piece about it. what I write about the bat is it's thin, it's light and it's lethal because he had <laughs> 1,200 in, hits in Japan and 3,000 in the US of A after 1,200 in Japan. They tried to keep him so long that he couldn't make it in the States, but he fooled everybody and beat all logic. He did. I followed his career, Don, when he was in Japan before he came over and, uh, you know, he, the years that he spent with the Oryx Blue Wave, and they're, they're now called the Oryx Buffalo. And remember getting a bat from his uh, seventh batting title. He won seven straight batting titles in Japan, along with, uh, I believe, uh, seven straight gold gloves. And what a marvel. How lucky are we that we got to see him play in America and really change or uh, not change the way the game is played, but bring a new dimension uh, with how quickly he got out of the box and with the ease and finesse he played the game going back to when the hall opened in 39 and continuing definitely into my boyhood and i'm not sure when it stopped and i couldn't find it on the internet when did they stop doing the hall of fame exhibition game on double day field 
Well, the exhibition game, uh, the Hall of Fame game, was a, a longtime staple and and actually predated the first induction, or was part of the first induction in 39, the cavalcade of baseball. But as the game became more complicated with more travel and more teams, it was becoming more and more difficult to schedule teams that you know wanted to come in the middle of August and play an exhibition game. And at one point, Major League Baseball stripped out all of its uh, in-season exhibition games. If you remember... Uh, as a Yankee guy, Don, and I remember this because it happened while I was there. Yeah, the Yankees would play the Mets in a home and away series uh, called the, uh, the the Mayor's Cup. And they would also play Grambling University. And we'd also play Columbus. We'd go to Columbus and play a game, play our, play the AAA club. All of that got stripped out as part, as one of the basic agreements, I think, in 2006 or seven, And then the Hall of Fame game finally uh, went the went the way went wayside, but uh, you know the reinvention that they have over Memorial Day called the Hall of Fame Classic is really uh, is perfect for uh, the setup is perfect for for Cooperstown because it's a it's 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 a retired players from each of the thirty teams playing in an exhibition game. So in a lot of ways, it's like a an all star game for nostalgia each year. Our guest on the Baseball Lifer podcast, former president of the Hall of Fame. Jeff Idelson, following after my visit there this past weekend, I focused on the Ford Seafrick Award winners. I was in that room for quite a while while I was there, and I'm sure you worked with a number of them during the years you were in Cooperstown. Oh, I sure did. And uh, again, before then, even because I was uh, I, I produced Ken Coleman and Joe Castiglione's broadcast in 87 and 88. And that was a trip working with Ken Coleman. I mean, he was a he was a character, uh, but I loved working with the two of them. And then uh, also our TV team, Ned Martin and Bob Montgomery and Jerry, Jerry Remy and those guys. And, uh, you know, and then in New York, I, I worked with the Scooter and uh, and that crew and Dwayne Stats and Jay Johnstone and George Grand and uh, and then into the Hall of Fame. You know, all of my friends from teams all across the country, I could not be happier for Pat Hughes been friends with him since he was in Milwaukee uh and uh he is just uh uh he's a gem and he's he's had the unique pleasure of working with uh uh both Bob Euchre and Ron Santo which is pretty unusual quick Pat Hughes story if I may the day we lost Harry Callis in 2009 Pat did a little say so on his radio broadcast and it was so good. It was so good about Harry, what he said, that I sent him a fan letter with no hope or expectation that he would respond to it because it was the first week of the season, 2009. I figured he had to be overwhelmed with everything he was doing. And But by golly, didn't he answer my fan letter? That's Pat Hughes for you. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Pat loves the history. He loves the connection with fans, and I'm sure he was thrilled to hear from you, Don. We've been talking on the Baseball Lifer podcast with Jeff Idelson, former president of the Hall of Fame. Last question. Is Grassroots Baseball an organization that looks for donations or looks for any other kind of help the public can give? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it, as again, we're just, we're a 501c3 and uh, we're trying to do as much good work as we can. And uh, as a not-for-profit, donations are tax deductible and most welcome either, you know, through our website is probably the easiest way, but we 
We sure do appreciate them when they come in. Grassrootsbaseball.org. O-R-G. Org. Yes, I wanted to talk about that some. And of course, I can't thank you enough for all you did to make our visit the success that it was, a weekend that I'm going to remember forever. And I'm going to immortalize it in a magazine article later tonight. And I'm glad you gave me a few minutes of your time on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Well, thanks so much, Don. It's always a pleasure to visit with you, and I'm honored to be on the podcast. Back in a minute to talk about next week's show, if you keep it right where it is. Back on our special Cooperstown edition, and thanks again to Jeff Idelson, former Hall of Fame president, for joining us and giving us his insights on a lot of good years he spent at Cooperstown. He told me about working with Joe Morgan who also worked at the Hall of Fame after his baseball days were done and his broadcasting days were done. A man who I heard called Little Joey Morgan, believe it or not, on a 1965 Astros radio broadcast. Before we sign off, I'm going to have a little fun. I'm going to ask a trivia question about Cooperstown, and I'm going to ask that question. You can respond in several ways. There is a Baseball Bifer page on Facebook. You can email me at this address, don at thebaseballlifer.com. So those two approaches you can take to answering this trivia question. Who was the first president to visit the Baseball Hall of Fame? And I'll give you a hint. It was in our century. That was what I found surprising when I heard this question. I would have thought it would have been Roosevelt or John F. Kennedy. But the first president to visit the Hall of Fame did so in our own century. So you can answer that either at the Baseball Lifer Facebook page or by emailing me at Don at the Baseball Lifer. So until we meet again next Friday, this is Don Wardlow for the Baseball Lifer podcast. Have a good week. They're shining on Cooperstown It's a place in our dreams Where the stars look down They're shining on Cooperstown